Welcome everyone to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Stephen Aoki, who is a professor and chief of sports at the University of Utah, where he also serves as a University of Utah team physician and head orthopedic team physician of Real Salt Lake Soccer. Dr. Aoki was a senior author of the article titled, Previous Arthroscopic Hip Surgery Increases Axial Distractibility Compared to the Native Contralateral Hip and May Suggest Instability, which was published in the May 2022 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Dr. Aoki's co-authors include Alexander Mortensen, Kelly Tomasevich, Sue Olson, Dylan O'Neill, and Joseph Featherall. Thank you so much, Dr. Aoki, for joining me today. Thanks, Dr. Spiker. Always great to talk to you. It's um, always nice to uh, spend time with you. You find you to be one of my favorite colleagues to hang around with at the at the meetings. Thank you. Likewise. I'm so glad you're here on our podcast with us. So, Steve, would you mind starting us uh, out today by just telling us a little bit about your practice and um, the types of sports and other injuries that you see? Sure. Uh, so my practice is a split between uh, pediatric and adult sports medicine. I, I spend about 50-50 of my time uh, uh, having a clinic with uh, pediatric patients and then a more of an adult uh, practice as well. Uh, it's sort of uh, backwards with the two where on the pediatric side, I see probably about 80% knee, 20% hip. And then on the adult side, uh, it's the exact opposite where it's about 80% hip, 20% knee currently as far as numbers. Uh, I've been at the University of Utah for a while now and did my training here as well. I'm not sure what happened. I've always thought of myself as one of the junior partners in my group. And then one day I blinked and no longer in that role. It's starting to feel feel my age. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, showing that you are now an expert in the field. And I think, um, you know, that's that's a that's not just at Utah, but also nationally. So we're we're glad to have you here talking about some of your recent research. I appreciate so- the opportunity. Speaking of this uh, current research paper that we're talking about, how did this question related to distractibility of the previously operated on hip arise? Sure. Uh, you know, this is, um, as you know, hip instability is kind of a challenging uh, issue uh, in the world of hip uh, preservation. And, you know, I, I do find it to be a little bit harder. Uh, and maybe the questions that we have are, a little bit more uh, challenging to answer right now in the native state, but I guess in the in the revision side of things, I think it's starting to get a little bit more clear as far as uh, the issues that we run into with uh, hip arthroscopy and particularly, you know, capsular management. There's, you know, we, we're starting to see as far as from the revision standpoint, you see patients with hip pain after a hip arthroscopy. You know, while most people do well after a hip arthroscopy, there are some people who just don't improve. And, you know, it's been historically, you look at why do people hurt? And it's sort of always been like under resection of, of bony deformities and uh, labral re-injury. But, you know, as we started to evolve, uh, we're starting to understand more uh, that the, the capsule and the hip stability is more important. Uh, you know, I just recently involved in an international consortium on uh, hip instability uh, where we're trying to identify how we all define the issue of hip instability. And this is another uh, arthroscopy publication uh, that was headed up by my good friend Mark Safran at uh, Stanford. And he gathered up a international consortium to look at, you know, what do we look at? And probably the one thing that we could 
the one major issue that we could all agree on is that under anesthesia that the hip distracts easily. And so it just, you know, just pulling on the leg, we all kind of had this idea that, that when you pull on a, on a lower extremity that the hip uh, opens up or is easier to distract and, and that was a sign of instability. And we just wanted to look at this a little bit more with more objective data. And luckily, the, you know, the table I use for our hip arthroscopy now has a built-in tensiometer, which allows you to uh, look at the distractibility and how much force it takes to distract the hip. And uh, I always tell my patients that it's like having a, a built-in fish scale uh, so they can understand what we're doing when we do an exam under anesthesia. Uh, and uh, we just wanted to take that information, try to put something objective to it and see, you know, can we put a little bit more objective data to this idea that a hip can uh, distracts more easily and that's a sign of instability. And that's kind of how these papers have, have uh, sort of evolved. And you bring up an excellent point about what we typically understand as one of the main reasons for revision hip arthroscopy. And, and previously, it's always been described as that under-resection of the cam. The, the new understanding of some of these more subtle and soft tissue-related issues is an interesting one. And it's also something that's, I think, harder to see preoperatively. So our limitations in MR imaging, especially in the post-op hip, um, really make it hard to see those things about, you know, related to the capsule, for example. So I think, you know, this is an excellent question. And I'm so glad that we're, we're starting to finally get a little bit more data on what this means. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. We need to, there's certainly more, more areas uh, or more research that we need to do to focus on this idea to understand all the reasons why individuals are not doing well after, after a hip scope. Because there's, there's um, you know, the, the issue of, of hip stability, we've always thought of it as a really constrained joint, and that's not necessarily true. So speaking of a native hip joint, how then were you able to determine the um, distractibility of the, the hip that had not been operated on? Were you in the operating room trying to distract that hip first prior to pulling traction on the operative leg? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, this started out just trying to figure out uh, how to how to figure out is someone really uh, loose because of what they had previously from their previous surgery. Uh, and so, you know, as you know, everyone's kind of built a little bit differently. Some people are just naturally a little bit loose and other people have, have a tight hip. And, and so we're trying to figure out why is someone symptomatic on one side versus the other. And, uh, you know, like a lot of the other things in, uh, in orthopedics, we're kind of looking at symmetry and symmetry within a person. And so I, I did, I used to sort of get a feel of the contralateral hip by just pulling on the hip before I have the tensiometer. And then I would pull on the contralateral hip and try to get a feel of whether I could get that hip to move. Uh, and uh, now with uh, having a tensiometer, I can take and, and I can uh, look at the native hip or the contralateral hip and pull on that hip and get an idea of their baseline and compare it to uh, the hip in question, the one that's undergoing the revision. And so uh, I can look at the difference between the two sides and the way that we have it designed uh, as far as a, a protocol, as far as how I look at this, it's look at the hip and I visualize it on fluoroscopy uh, at uh, zero pounds. And then I pull it to, uh, in 25 pound increments up to 100 pounds. And then I compare the two sides and I look at, I 
kind of the two main things that I look at clinically is what at what distraction or what pound pressure do we start seeing distraction? And then at overall distraction at 100 pounds, how much did it distract compared to the contralateral side? And that gives me an idea of is it truly loose or is it, you know, looking pretty normal? You know, and then there's some limitations. It's, it's kind of a basic uh, concept, but, you know, as far as looking at trying to put, trying to get an idea of how much that hip moves and how much it distracts, it's, it's kind of the best I've got right now as far as trying to make this, make sense of this issue. Yeah. And this is a lot more than we've ever had before. So that's great. Now, in your experience, are there any clinical signs or imaging findings that might suggest hip instability in the previously operated on hip prior to getting the patient in the operating room and then testing distractibility? Yeah, sure. We've had, we have another paper that uh, we put out a few years ago that looked at sort of the clinical issues that may occur with, with these individuals. So we took individuals that uh, were hip instability patients where we went back and we did a, either a capsule repair or capsule reconstruction. And, and we tried to look back and see what do people complain about. Uh, we looked back at uh, history, physical, and studies and tried to figure out, you know, are there certain findings that, that people were complaining about? And, you know, the biggest issue is pain. You know, there's pain and they're just not improving. And, and in, that, in that paper, most of the Patients had pain with with their activities of daily living, and all of them struggled with sports. It happened most most commonly in females, uh, hypermobile patients. Uh, and then there's probably some issues related to you know the shallow dysplastic or mildly dysplastic hip uh, with stability, and they're just less tolerant of having a capsular issue. Uh, we also uh, identified patients uh, more recently that you know thin capsules are uh, more likely to have instability after a hip scope. Maybe they're not as likely to heal, uh, and so that's another study that should be coming out here pretty soon. On physical exam, my preference is to do an axial distraction test, and the way I do that is, uh, at least initially when I first started doing it, I would put my uh, my uh, knee underneath their ischium and. And uh, I'd bend the hip up about 45 degrees or so, and then uh, I'd do a, a pull on the on the hip. And I start off pulling lightly, and then I start pulling a little bit harder. And I look for three components. I look at pain. Uh, I look at whether someone has apprehension when you pull, uh, and uh, whether I can actually get that hip to toggle out of joint. And it has like a little bit of a softer endpoint. It doesn't. It doesn't. The body doesn't shift and move with with while you're testing. That's evolved as well. I also think of it a little bit like a Lachman's exam where you examine the contralateral uh, hip first and you, you can get a, a feel of that hip as you pull on it. And usually on the normal hip or on, you know, even an FAI hip where, uh, where they have pain with impingement testing, if I do an axial distraction test, they usually don't hurt. When I, when I pull on, on a hip that's unstable, you usually, they usually have complaints or they feel that difference between the two sides. Uh, there's certainly other ways of looking at stability that have been described as well. Uh, the last aspect of this is um, the MRI issue. Uh, we have another paper that we put out uh, looking at uh, MRIs and, and MRAs. Uh, my preference is to get an MR arthrogram uh, on all revision patients because it's just easier to, to identify uh, size and, and quality of a, of a capsular uh, defect. Sometimes it can be really difficult to see on an MRI. And we've had patients where we've had uh, patients come in with MRIs where their capsule looks pretty decent, 
and then uh, we've repeated it with an MR arthrogram, and it's it's a you know large defect that that's obvious to to, uh, to visualize on on your um, uh, study. So uh, it, at least in the revision setting, I always get MR arthrograms. I agree with you. I have the same preference in the revision setting, whereas I get an MRI with no contrast in a native hip. The MR arthrogram, I think it's so impressive sometimes when you see exactly as you were discussing, a huge plume of that arthrogram die exiting the capsule where it may just lay flat on an MRI without that increased fluid inside the joint. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it, it takes away the guessing, right? It, it, you, see these, you see these real large defects sometimes that, that you just don't visualize on the MRI. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about what you found. Did you find that the type of capsulotomy the patient had in their prior surgery make a difference in the distractibility? Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question. With the numbers that we have, we just weren't able to, to look at the actual type of capsulotomy and whether that played a role in the instability issue. Uh, I'll tell you, though, that when you look at the capsulotomy uh, types where you're looking at you know, interportal versus teeing it, you know, I, our numbers were not very high on the on the T side, uh, but our numbers, I think, in general, if you look at our area, uh, there's probably a little bit of a, a bias as far as like how things are done from a capsular management uh, standpoint. But that's a great question. I think it's it's still something that is is yet to be answered. Um, I will tell you that the ones that the individuals that come in to see me, where they have not had a capsular repair. Uh, and they're coming in with instability, they consistently distract uh, more than than their native hip. So uh, I think if you look at the ones, I kind of expect if someone didn't have a capsular repair that they are going to have, uh, and they're complaining of discomfort, they're going to have an unstable hip. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I have the same experience uh, with patients who haven't had a capsular repair at at their prior surgery and I'm hoping that nowadays there's more of a shift in that people around the nation are repairing capsules as we're realizing these issues if you don't repair the capsule. The one question I always have if, if a patient comes in with a failed hip arthroscopy from another surgeon, even if they do say they've done a capsular repair, you know, it's hard to know what the quality of that capsular repair was. Did they put one stitch in and, and call it repaired or you know, did they do a nice, robust capsular repair? And I think that makes a difference that we just, as of yet, can't quite um, quanti- quantify when we're looking at pre-op imaging and operative notes. Sure. I, I completely agree with that. I, I will also tell you that, you know, I, I kind of feel like with my capsule repair, I'm, I think about this a lot when I'm, when I'm uh, surgically addressing uh, the hip. And, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to, to close that capsule. And I try to preserve that capsule throughout the, the surgery so that I'm not getting into any of the, the native tissue. And, and I still have my patients that don't heal. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's even, even in individuals that get a, a watertight closure, there's sometimes individuals that don't heal that capsule, that it, maybe it's not, it's not enough for their hip to give them the stability that they need, that it, it might stretch out or, you know, down the road, do they, do they uh, re-tear it with, with an aggressive pivoting uh, episode? There's, there's just some people who that soft tissue doesn't, um, doesn't do its, its job at the, uh, 
in the healing process. It just doesn't, it's not competent enough for, for the patient. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I certainly have had patients who, you know, two weeks after surgery, especially here in Wisconsin, when we have icy winters, slip and then, you know, go into the splits or something occurs before the capsule has completely had a chance to heal. Uh, and then, of course, there are patients with uh, connective tissue disorders such as Ehlers-Danlos, and they may have some difficulty healing that capsule as well. Yeah, you know, that you bring up a good question with patients. You know, you have that patient that's doing really well. They have that injury right after uh, the surgery, and all of a sudden, things just don't feel right. It, it, it doesn't, they just, they have that look in their eye that, that something's wrong. I move on those patients quickly nowadays because I've been through this enough where you kind of watch them, you nurse it, you nurse it, you nurse it. Uh, I move on, on them quicker nowadays. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll clinically, if, if someone uh, has an injury in a way that they hyperextend or they move their hip and it just something happened and they, they, they are now all of a sudden worse, I'll move on that hip and go in because, because usually that means that they, they rip through those, those capsular uh, stitches. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so what, what do you think in those patients that have had a reported capsule repair prior to surgery, when you got into that hip in the revision setting, what did you see? I mean, did you, did you find that in most cases that the capsule just had to hist or had not healed? Was there a lot of scar tissue? Um, was it just a thinner healed capsule? You know, what, what, what was a common theme when you got back into those hips? Yeah, you know it's it's variable, and and I think that it's when you look at as you as you know when you look at MR arthrograms, it, the appearance is quite variable as far as what you see, uh, and you know we try to quantify this uh, on on MR arthrograms. Uh, it's really challenging. Uh, sometimes the capsule looks like it's sort of bare, but it looks thin, and so there's sort of this redundant look. Uh, on MR arthrograms, and and it usually correlates to when you get in uh, to the hip that that hip that capsule looks like it's sort of there, but when you start dissecting through the soft tissue, you can kind of tell what scar and what sort of bridging scar and what's what's native capsule. You know, in other times it's it's like a blown out capsule where where it's just like grossly uh, that ballooning effect uh, up in the in the front in that inner. Uh, portal or in that T uh, region. Oftentimes what I'll see is kind of a gap where you see that the stitches are visible uh, and it sort of marks out that, that area of the capsule that didn't heal or, or uh, split open. And then on T capsulotomies, what I'll see is that on MR arthrograms, those are the ones if the, if the vertical on the T has uh, failed, what what it looks like on the MR orthogram, it, it almost looks like it's deficient in capsule going all the way down the neck. And mm-hmm. when you get in and you see those those capsular defects, it's usually that there's an opening that you can find and you can kind of trace that down and follow that area where the where the stitches didn't heal. And so again, it, it's quite variable as far as what what I see when I get in there. The one thing that I'll tell you that I, I usually do uh, for or the revision hip is if I'm going in for uh, a revision, I'm always using that when I'm setting up my portals. Uh, I'm setting up my portal that I normally do, but I move that uh, spinal needle around and I try to find the defect so that I don't cause more harm to the native capsule. I'm feeling for that area. And usually you can feel an area 
where you just drop into the hip where you can find that defect. And so I'll, I'll target my uh, spinal needle into that uh, previous capsulotomy defect so that I'm not injuring further capsule. That's a great tip. So in our last couple of minutes here, do you have any takeaways from this particular research study? You've looked at it, you know, with other papers and multiple different questions, but what was there about this particular study that you think might change your practice going forward or be an emphasis in something that you teach your residents and fellows? Yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's uh, probably the most important question here is trying to take what we do uh, and try to try to apply that to the clinical perspective so we can take better uh, care of patients. And, you know, when, when I'm looking at, I guess the main issue that I would try to try to get out there is that when you're evaluating a hip that's still painful after a hip arthroscopy, you know, we've historically thought of it as, you know, something structural with like the labrum and or or bony anatomy and I think we just have to think about you know hips hip instability due to capsular insufficiency is just another potential cause and I think it's I personally think that it's it's uh, under evaluated and it's and it's uh, it happens more than we think after hip arthroscopy and this has changed my practice is uh, you know I currently in my practice today I currently uh, rely a lot on that stress exam under anesthesia when making a, a clinical surgical decision. Uh, so I do that stress exam at the beginning of all of my hip arthroscopies to get an idea of uh, is there something different about you know the the hip that uh, that we're operating on and uh, uh, does that give that gives me some information that I can use to potentially hopefully overall make this process better and. And try to try to make it so that you know uh, when we look at the results of hip arthroscopy that we continue to get better, uh, so that we have less individuals that have uh, hip issues, continued hip issues after the procedure. That's an excellent point, and I think understanding more of these underappreciated problems will, just as you said, make us better and and help our patients going forward. So. Thank you so much for doing this research and putting this out there and also for talking to us about your experience. Thanks, Andrea. I really appreciate the time. Dr. Aoki's paper titled Previous Arthroscopic Hip Surgery Increases Axial Distractibility Compared to the Native Contralateral Hip and May Suggest Instability can be found in the May 2022 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes our episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Please join us next time, and thank you so much for having us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Mm-hmm.